Oh, hello there, Sam Hampson here, and this is What's Happening Now. Again, uh, after a little bit of a break, we are back, and I do have bad news and good. The bad is that this is the last episode of the series. The good is that we, we, we will be back. We'll be back in January, and we are back right here, right now, for one final time, with an episode on climate, and sewage, and the environment, and everything in between. We even do littering. Now, two years ago, 100,000 people took to the streets of Glasgow for COP26 and said the environment and climate mattered. This week, COP28 starts in Dubai. And while the attention of the world feels like it's elsewhere, uh, Cole was crazy, but we thought this conversation was still worth having. So here's an episode we recorded a few weeks ago. Enjoy. Watcher. Watcher. James O'Malley, back again, made the whole series. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, that yeah. sounded really sincere. That sounded like a really sincere thank you. Yeah, I'm, 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 do, I'm doing all right. Uh, I'm pleased the catchphrase is going in. I've got a catchphrase now. I'm just telling our, our third guest who you'll introduce in moments that we've... Um, yeah, I've got a catchphrase. And, oh. and, it's sticky, and I'm sticking with it. Good. It's, a, it's an important comedic device. And, and you've, you've spoiled the surprise to the listeners. But we are joined again by a, a, an esteemed guest. <laughs> and back again. Laura, Laura Walsh returned uh, to the What's Happening Now studio. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. I was here, I remember Watcher. People are saying it. People are saying it. Everyone's talking about it. Be on t-shirts soon. Yeah, that's a good idea. You should merch for the podcast. Forget the podcast. It's just a James O'Barley brand. Um, (laughs) He will sell you a t-shirt if you're this nice to him. It's uh, maybe even a discount. (laughs) Who knows? Um, Guys, how are you doing, Laura? Last time you were here... I accused you of being a quarter finalist for the Leicester Square New Act of the Year competition, uh, and you were very humble about it. You were like, "That's as far as I'm going. I've had enough." Uh, how how was that? How was that? The quarter final? Oh, it was lovely. Yeah, it was a really nice gig, and now I'm a semi finalist. Oh, yeah. what? What? It's almost like I knew that had happened. <laughs> it's always like we had a conversation before we could sit. Yeah, record. maybe, maybe that's why you got invited <laughs> back because you know this successful comedian. It's uh, you're going places. <laughs> One of those places is the studio again, but another place is onwards and upwards. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah. yeah. It's all good. And James, uh, what's been going on for you? What has been going on for me? Um, I don't have a, well, do I have a good answer for this? Um, have an honest one. If you've got anything that you want to share, it's the last of the series. You what, can what, open up. The most interesting thing I've done recently is have a meeting with you in London. Uh, <laughs> like last Saturday. I, I've been, since then, I've just been sat in front of a computer. You so I don't, have a, I don't have a good story, unfortunately. Forget I asked. I can talk about my partner's DIYs. That's exciting. That's a different podcast. No? We'll have that, uh, have that another week. Hi to Liz and good luck with the DIY projects. <laughs> James, the big question we're here to answer mm. is not how you're doing, not what Liz is doing with DIY, but what is COP? So COP is the big annual or semi-annual, these days it's annual climate conference. It stands for the Conference of Parties and it's basically where all of the countries uh, get together, uh, organised by the UN in different places around the world. uh, And basically they're trying to crack the climate nut. So everyone gets together and everyone sort of goes, oh, we really need to be doing more about this terrifying thing called climate change. But the big breakthroughs um, in 1997, there was the Kyoto Protocol, which you might remember. This was a big, this was like the big agreement where the world finally says, maybe we should do something 
saying about this massive problem. And then more recently, 2015, there was the Paris Agreement, which was when the world finally agreed two, cent- um, two degrees uh, centigrade was the, the limit for how much warming we can have. And that was when we basically all agreed, yeah, let's try and hit net zero by 2050. And since then, uh, the world has been meeting several times more. And everyone's been basically turning the screws, trying to say, well, let, let's set even tougher targets. Let's try and decarbonize even faster. Uh, so 2021, we, we hosted it in Glasgow. Not me and you personally. Uh, but, but <laughs> that was Britain. A, that's how this podcast started. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Th- thank God the stress of organizing the conference wasn't on us. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, and since then, uh, there was one last year in Sharm El Sheikh in Egypt. And there's one in, um, in the United Arab Emirates in Dubai. And uh, yeah, presumably there, they will be turning the screws even further and being like, yeah, let, come on, let's, let's, let's make this even, even more achievable. Uh, very great explanation. You covered all bases. Laura, a similar question for you, a similar in scale and explanation. How do you change the world, Laura Walsh? That feels like a big uh, goal of this conference. How do you change the world? This isn't funny, but I've had a think. <laughs> <laughs> Warning, I've been thinking. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, I think... It has to be. It's about people taking action and working together and putting yourself in the position of others. And it's about solidarity and not charity. You have to have a sense of optimism with it too. And I also think you should overthrow um, heavy industry. (laughs) (laughs) There was such a pause there that was like, who are we overthrowing? Um, Okay, so we change the world by being optimistic and overthrowing the world order. Yes. I mean, fair. It's probably not on the agenda for... For, for COP this week, but what sort of things do you think will really take the attention of the, the leaders that are there? <laughs> Realistically, it's how can they how can they spin their new oil field <laughs> policy? Yeah, I mean, as a thing like that, really, isn't it? It, it? it does like, feel different from a few years ago in Glasgow. Yeah, there was a lot it was of, like, hmm. come on, we're doing something. Yeah, yeah. it felt. That sense of optimism was there a few years ago. Now there's stuff like Rishi going back and going, now we'll delay it a little bit. And and it's... All because of you, Les. (laughs) All because of, what was it? The Uxbridge by-election. The the single most important moment (laughs) in history, I think. Which is how you should come, which is how you should decide all climate (laughs) policy based on the electorate of Uxbridge. It's a good reason. But this is the... Okay, I'm going to do something very dangerous now and praise Boris Johnson. So the one thing, the one, perhaps the one good thing he did was because he was so into climate, even if it was for cynical reasons, Mm. the fact he managed to keep the Tories on board with net zero was a good thing because that wasn't a given and we're seeing that unravel now uh, under... First and uh, uh, your friend Liz Trush, but Liz Trust, but then yeah. Rishi. The fact that Boris was there banging the drum for climate and making sure that the right were on side, that was that was quite a good thing. We had a few years where there was this sort of big sense of consensus, which mm. I guess in, in this country, on the political level, no longer exists in quite the same way. I think everyone pays sort of rhetorical uh, lip service to, oh yeah, of course, of course we care about net zero. But there's definitely a lot more people now saying, yeah, but hang on, let's, let's be a bit more careful or a bit more slow or do it a bit differently. So mm. the politics has definitely got worse in terms of like <laughs> actually doing something, I think, about climate change. Do you think that's because the, um, the Conservative Party were in a arguably stronger position with Boris Johnson in terms of like, electoral gains whereas now they're sort of like scrambling a bit to get everything <laughs> they can and they're just like oh fuck <laughs> just... it, I it, don't know sorry you don't have to include that that's just a genuine question fuck <laughs> It, it is a weird thing. I, 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 who knows what's going on inside yeah. the collective minds of the Tories? But it just seems to be that, like they've sort of decided that people because because of Uxbridge, everyone hates net zero. Actually, if you look at the polling, people are still broadly supportive of uh, like climate measures and and yeah. reaching net zero. I think there is a real problem, and it's a real thing that people are less 
less happy to do stuff if it actually affects their lives mm. if they actually negatively have to change their behavior in some way um but yeah on principle it, it seems crazy to me that the uh, that Rishi came out a few weeks ago now and did this whole well actually we're going to slow down and do things because who's that for apart yeah. from his party it doesn't really make sense to me but. yeah totally it moved on quickly as well right it mm. felt like a big conversation at the time yeah. and that it was felt really relevant and mm. it's kind of not stuck Mm. Like, the, you know, the Conservatives made these changes and didn't experience a poll bump and kind of get people back on side with the changes that they came out with. Mm. Um, and globally, attention's elsewhere. It doesn't mm. feel like the sexy conversation of, of the moment. But there are there are examples about how relevant it is. The, the US have put a report out in the last few weeks about how much it actually costs. Uh, $150 billion, uh, hit to the US economy from climate change is the latest report wow. um, which is significant they say in the report that the US now experiences an extreme weather event in which damages and costs top a billion dollars every three weeks and bloody hell bloody hell those are big numbers that is huge but it doesn't make the news in the same way as you know big things that are happening around the world what big things that uh, <laughs> Taylor Swift's Era's Tour. Oh, that's what I, that's what I was assuming. Um, and there's, there's, there's elsewhere. The, in Paris, the Paris mayor is, is putting a vote on a new parking fee for SUVs because there's too many SUVs in Paris. Yeah. As the view. So there's, there's little stories, stories sneak out here and there. What do you think is the biggest concern in Britain? Is it sewage pollution? Is it littering? Is it energy business overthrowing the capitalist economy? What's the... <laughs> What do you think actually gets people going here? The sewage thing got everybody up in arms, didn't it? Because that was just that was just actually disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone went, ugh. No, <laughs> that. Yeah, what do you think, James? Well, I, I think this is really interesting, actually, because mm. it depends whether we're talking about climate or whether we're talking about the environment, because yeah. the sewage stuff, yeah, pretty gross and pretty bad uh, that we're apparently pouring loads of waste uh, in, into our rivers. Um, but ultimately, when it comes to climate change, it's almost a different conversation because when it comes to climate, the only sort of metric that matters is the number of parts per million of greenhouse emissions in the air. And the reason it's important is and I think there's a big sort of philosophical difference between climate mitigation and sort of traditional environmentalism is that these things can be opposed. And I'm sorry, I'm going to talk about trains again. Oh, no. So when we wanted to build HS2, which was this new railway that was going to, was supposed to go and should still go all the way to Manchester, that would have um, reduced the number of car journeys in the, in, on, on the roads. It would have uh, done... Um, load of really good things in terms of sort of climate mitigation and in terms of carbon emissions but there was a, a lot of opposition to it from environmentalists you got you had groups uh, like in, I think it was uh, I think Extinction Rebellion did this certainly groups of their ilk did this uh, protesting against HS2 on environmental grounds because they would they would claim it was destroying uh, so-called ancient woodland and and you know knocking down a few trees and stuff and so it's almost in opposition <laughs> um, uh, and so you've got this almost tension between sort of conser- you know conservationism and in my view, actually doing stuff about climate change because if we're going to have a sort of a, a net zero world, my view is we actually need to like build that world and that's mm. going to involve mm. building stuff. The one th- last thing I'll say uh, um, is I often think like, you think of like, what does net zero look like? And you, you, pick, you, you picture in your head rolling hills and everyone holding hands and singing or whatever else in this perfect utopia. Unfortunately, it's not going to look like that. It's going to be like boring industrial estates in Slough, but with all the lorries powered by batteries rather than <laughs> rather than petrol or something like that. That is such an old Mali version of uh, utopia <laughs> of like actually guys it's gonna be it's gonna be this. <laughs> Do you know what we've all got different angles? Did you hear what the new Defra secretary, um, minister for the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, Steve Barclay, said on taking the job this week? No, I didn't. No, 
he uh, he told staff in his first speech internally that why is he was asked why is the environment important to you, Steve? And his response was, I have two dogs, and I want them to have access to great landscapes. Well, that's that's really why we're all doing. That's why the world is going on this thing. This is this is on the agenda at COP, isn't it? That Steve Barclay's dogs are going to be happy. You know? <laughs> it's it's that I have a dream speech for the oh for God. the Middle England, isn't it? Yeah. Um, how optimistic are we, guys? How do we feel? Let's take a temperature check in the studio. But how do we feel about progress? How do we feel about the environment and climate? Um, Laura, your face does not it... say optimism. <laughs> <laughs> not not generally, but specifically not in answer to that, that question. Um, I feel optimistic that there are lots of people working very very hard to come up with solutions and to change things for the better this this sounds like i think people are trying their best but they are they are there's loads of like amazing people doing amazing things i think they need to be given space time and resources and able and the backing by the government and by you know like society in general to sort of like actually make those things happen well Steve Barkley and his two dogs are on board so what more do you need <laughs> but is he I don't know if he is like if it no. doesn't affect his dogs <laughs> <laughs> the Barkley test is this good for Fido and Rover yeah I don't know they'll probably both be called Thatcher I don't know how, how it works um James, what about you? Mm. Uh, optimistic? Weirdly, yes, I am quite optimistic. Um, I In think, the same way as Laura is. Yeah, I think I think there are a lot of people doing good things. And the fact that even though we have these sort of uh, stumbles, um, ultimately a lot of the world, most people do accept climate change as an issue. Polling wise, climate change is right up there. Obviously, when you when you ask the public what issues do you care about, obviously you know the NHS and schools tend to be the top of the thing. But then you know third or fourth, people will say. Uh, climate change now. So the activists have done a really good job mm. of getting up there onto the agenda as a thing uh, people care about. And if you look at our actual progress, some things we're doing aren't too. Aren't, we're not doing too badly. So the thing I always like to point to is our electricity grid. What used to be, uh, you know, entirely fossil fuel based. We used to have loads of coal in the eighties. Uh, then it was primarily sort of gas based uh, generation in the nineties. Since uh, around sort of twenty ten sort of time, the amount of renewables on the grid has really shot up to a sort of incredible extent. Uh, there's an app I use on my phone. I go on there quite often called Grid Carbon. And what it does, it shows you the <laughs> you current energy... You go on there quite often. I'm, I'm always checking it out because you look at the energy, it shows you the real-time energy mix of what's going on in the grid. And, like, you will see, like, days when we hit, like, 50%, 60% wind generation, which would have just been unimaginable not so long ago. And if you look at the price of, like, re deploying renewables, uh, th like, the cost of solar panels has just absolutely collapsed in the last decade or so. So we're, we're now getting to a point where the technologies, like, renewables are going to be cheaper than fossil fuels. So there is lots of really encouraging signs, I, th I think. It makes it easier to do good things when it's cheaper and more convenient, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. and that's why I think... that Back to you, Les. I think it needs to be incentivised to make better decisions. Like, I understand mm. why people are annoyed about you, Les. Well, I don't know. I'd, I personally think it would be a fine thing, but I understand that it's inconvenient, and if you require a car for you know, earning money and stuff, it would be very annoying but i think yeah it's about like incentivizing making those better greener decisions isn't it i want to pick up those two things tied together you said james that you think environmental groups and activist groups have done a good job of bringing yeah. it to the agenda mm. laurie talking about ulez mm. do you think activist groups have done a good job on the campaigning side or do you think people they're doing more harm than good no well i think they are because it's getting in the news like i think they're very brave people like, I really admire the people that put themselves up for doing those sorts of things. I, yeah, and I think that it's getting 
it's getting the issues on the news and it's getting it talked about and it wouldn't be if, if they weren't doing those kinds of stunts. James, what do you think about the activists and how good a job they're doing? Yeah, so I feel very mixed. Like, obviously, they've done a good job of getting it onto the agenda, but I do think that a lot of climate activists are sort of really poorly disciplined and sort of counterproductive a lot of the time. So uh, I got a press release in my inbox from Extinction Rebellion today. Uh, uh, they had a big protest today. I don't know if it made any headlines, but this is what they were telling the world they did. Uh, they apparently held a protest in Parliament about the situation in Gaza. Ah. This is Extinction Rebellion, the famous environmental group. They yeah. had a thing, they had, held a banner uh, emblazoned with the message, ceasefire now. And... Obviously, you know, that, that whole, the whole situation in the Middle East is a very uh, difficult, complex issue. I imagine many people listening have very strong feelings about uh, that situation. But my, my view is, why confuse that and why complicate that with climate if your thing is climate? Because if, you're, if you've got to sort of build a sort of coalition of people who support an issue, then you need to have people who believe different things on board. So my, if you've got, you know, for example, like the Conservative Party, for instance, under Boris Johnson, a lot of Conservatives were on board with doing something about climate. If you then say to them to mitigate climate, we've also got to, we've also got to reform capitalism and fix the situation in the Middle East. That's a much tougher ask than just pull up some solar panels and some windmills. Do you know what's really handy? Talking about people with different views and people who might want to reform capitalism. Mm. Laura? <laughs> but can I just say, I think that I think that Extinction Rebellion are the perfect people to be holding up a banner inside Parliament saying ceasefire now. Because like they're a group of people who are very, very skilled and very good at getting their message across. And so if this is a message that they, as a collective, believe in, mm. then why shouldn't they? And I think that it's important. When, when important news events happen organizations like you know say what they think about it and i think that a lot of people who support extinction rebellion also support a ceasefire in gaza there's an overlap you know what we should do we should talk to someone who has an inside knowledge of extinction rebellion how they operate so yeah uh, the other the other day we spoke to uh, zeon lights who is a climate activist uh, she's actually a former spokesperson for um, extinction rebellion uh, but in, in an interesting and controversial twist uh, she actually left the group a couple of years ago and became a pro-nuclear activist um, and so, so she's still cares about climate change uh, but now believes that nuclear energy is, is the way to go and it's sort of a fascinating journey and, and she had a really interesting perspective and uh, bias is on the table I completely agree with her shtick as you can probably tell oh, of course. But, um, but, but she was very fascinating to, to listen to and you can listen to that on the What's Happening Now website yeah there's going to be a, a bonus episode released of our conversation with Zeon uh, does cover, I think, a little bit of what we're talking about today, how Extinction Rebellion operates, where they're at, where she thinks they're at, and where the climate activist movement is now. So what else is happening now? What else is happening in the news? Laura Walsh, what have you got that's happening elsewhere this week? So there was a study from Aberystwyth University oh, yeah. that found that magicians are less prone to mental disorders than other artists. <laughs> this is the last episode of the series, and I feel like we've peaked. That is, um, <laughs> this is why we exist. A study from Aberystwyth University that magicians are less prone to mental disorders, did you say? Yes. Than other artists. I don't believe that. Uh, Aberystwyth, sorry. I feel like magicians... Does that mean they are less less affected or they're just not noticed because they're busy with their tricks oh well maybe i mean there are a bunch of people that keep trying to s saw their assistants in half so maybe it's just they're undiagnosed i don't know it concluded that magicians scored significantly lower than other types of creatives and 
normal folk. <laughs> <laughs> Muggles, as they are known. Yes. Okay. Despite their job involving the illusion of delving into mystery, magicians were less likely to have unusual experiences such as hallucinations or cognitive disorganisation, the study found. Oh, really? It also showed, basically, the sort of summing up of the article was that magicians are sort of booking the trope of the tortured artist. <laughs> okay. And they talked to a New York magician called Sarah Crossan, who said that magic was a way of getting positive social status and attention, and it often helps people overcome a lack of social skills, giving you confidence, and it can really build you up and help you overcome issues. So to stop anxiety, to stop any kind of issue, just pull a couple of rabbits out of hats. People love it. Well, yeah. So this surprises me because, and forgive me, because you're you're both entertainers professionally. My impression was... And maybe this is a controversial opinion. I thought being a magician was quite a low status thing. I would have thought being the cool comedian would be like the high status, I'm, you know, well adjusted sort of thing. And being a magician would be the weird, like the, the thing have, the nerd kid does. I haven't thought about it before. What do you think is the hierarchy of cool to weird and creative? Clowns are obviously king now. After Vigo Ven won Britain's Got Talent, I feel like clowns are the coolest. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, Laura, maybe. Laura's face I hate clowns. No, no I don't way. love clowns. I love it. Um, yeah, I, I'm doing a, a thing, a, a thing at the moment with them, some like clowns and alternative comedians, and I definitely feel a sense of shame while we have to go around and say what we do. And I say, I'm Laura, and I'm a stand-up comedian. I'm like, I'm so sorry. All the clowns are like, <laughs> like boo. See, in, in, my, cool. in, in my head, there, all the alternative comedians are there in their leather jackets, smoking cigarettes, well, or something. Yeah, exactly. And then the clowns are there with their red noses, and surely they're going to the be the ones cigarette. who are more secret. <laughs> <laughs> Big shoes, yeah. yeah. It's it said like it was very very common for especially male magicians to come to magic between the ages of eight and fourteen to overcome a social deficit in some way. Maybe the bully won't beat them up if they can show the bully a cool trick. <laughs> As you get older, you get mugs, and it's like, would you like my wallet or would you like to pick a card? But do you remember there was that really cool magician? Was it Dynamo? Gandalf. Oh yeah, yeah, Dynamo. He's not a magician. He's oh, a wizard. Big difference, right? Okay. <laughs> Uh, no, you that, know there's a difference, Sam. Yeah, I, I actually do. I hate myself for confusing those two things. Um, I'll be talking about warlocks next, and it'll be, oh, no. Do you know what? The more I think about this, like, name some magicians. You've got Dynamo, David Blaine. I feel like magicians, you're telling me that they're more mentally... That David Blaine sat in a box for a long time. That That is not I a man who screams he, mentally stable. I don't know if he was included in the study, but also that's just one magician. Yeah, it's probably not, probably not a scientific approach yeah. to this. My story this week, uh, sadly, actually doesn't have any magicians involved. Um, it has spacemen and tied loosely to climate in that it's not tied at all, but it's about the world. It's about littering. This week, astronauts dropped a tool bag during an ISS spacewalk. So they were out in space, dropped a bag, and you can now see it from Earth with binoculars. No way! <laughs> yeah. uh, it dropped away from them and it's got a visual magnitude of around six. That means anything six, to you. Six. six. I don't know what that's What's out the of. Maximum? I don't know. Six. It might be a really big bag. I have no idea. Uh, but it, you can now see it with binoculars from Earth um, a couple of minutes ahead of the ISS. If you're watching out for the space station going across the sky, you'll see the space bag beforehand. <laughs> wow. There you go. Actually, follows a story last month, which is, look, I'm going to get two in here, where the first, uh, the first fine was made for space junk. The US government issued a, a fine for a company... Um, of $150,000 for failing to move an old satellite far enough from others. So it's getting crowded up there. That's my story. That, that is the thing. They 
I've heard that space is full of rubbish. It's, it's a genuinely big issue because yeah. the, the problem is if you get too much debris up there, it all smashes into each other and becomes even finer particles. Like when they, there's a big thing when Russia a few years ago uh, launched a missile and destroyed a satellite, sending debris everywhere, which made it more dangerous uh, for the International Space Station. And the, the big nightmare sci-fi scenario is we so much stuff up there smashes up um, and then all the little particles smashes up everything else and then you just had this massive dust cloud around the Earth making it basically really dangerous to launch stuff into space. But maybe the um, big dust cloud will stop all of the mad millionaires going up into space and Maybe. so that will save the climate. And that keeps them here? Maybe, yes. Um, yeah, or Good. they can go and live in the dust cloud. Sure you're working. You don't strike me as someone who wants mad millionaires kept on this planet. Well, I don't want them going up and wasting all that money going into space okay. I'd rather them spend it on something else. Yeah, what they should do is should become magicians. Yeah, They'd be much happier and everyone else would. Spend it on a magic course. <laughs> would, be, would be entertained by Elon Musk. <laughs> doing magic um, I would much rather Elon Musk do magic than whatever the hell he's doing at this, the this is a whole other episode <laughs> I'm not even going to look at James and be like is Elon Musk good or bad that's a conversation for another show and listeners you can decide uh, I've actually got an update on my bag story the bag is two to four minutes ahead of the space station uh, you can track it by ask, NASA has got a new app where you can see not for the bag it's got an app to track the space station <laughs> it's like find my iPhone <laughs> yeah someone, just, just for someone one left their phone in there too. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, that's how you find it. Uh, but sad, sad end to this story, the bag is likely to disintegrate when it reaches uh, 70 miles above the Earth. Oh. So catch it while you can. James, finish us mm. up this week. What's your story? Right, so have you ever noticed on the London Tube map uh, how there is, a, there is a station on the Docklands Light Railway in East London called Abbey Road? Yes. This no, I actually haven't noticed ah, that. Okay. That's super interesting. Are you not doing the tube map game? I'm actually, no, I'm not. And, and I feel like I don't know the tube map at all. Sometimes I'll sit on the tube and I'm looking like, didn't know that place existed. Oh. Uh, I'm a bad Londoner. Mm. Anyway, I, yeah, no, I, I, I tried that game and it's been driving me insane because I'm a nerdy man. I feel like I should know them all, but I'm terrible. Wait, this is not just a general game. This is a specific. It's a specific. There's a, like a viral game yeah. at the moment um, where everyone can go and play. And you've got to type the, check the station names in and see how many you can do. I got to about 70% uh, and then I was just, driving my head into a wall, going crazy, trying, trying to do it. I'm missing out. I was out. obsessed with it. I was filling it in like it was my job. <laughs> like, <laughs> I had to... Me, I had to fill in all of the tube lines. I knew a weird amount. Me and my partner were talking about it, and we think that um, you're allowed to fill it in on the tube if you're on the line. <laughs> Like you're allowed to look at mm. them. Well, that's <laughs> at a rule. The map. That's an unwritten rule that you, you're allowed well, to look. Well, that's the rule that I think. It's not really Do a test of knowledge, then, is it? <laughs> the infuriating thing is that's just who can get on the tube that's, the most. That's then. an open book exam for somebody who, when you say it's like your job, did you just quit your job and just go wandering <laughs> around the tube? I got on every tube line. Yeah. Yeah. A few years. This is why it's annoying me. So I got to about 60, 70 percent. A few years ago, I visited every single tube station in the space of a year and touched in and out of everything. I've got a photo of me and a YouTube video where you can see me standing outside of every single tube station. I'm a very cool man. So um, I feel like every week and you I bring something like this up. Yeah. And I've got the same question for you as ever. Why? Because I'm a very cool cool dude. Okay, that's um, what cool dudes do, is it? Yeah. This, Watcher, this, I'm off to every tube station that, in London. That's how we roll. Um, <laughs> we cool dudes. Yeah. All right, okay. I've found my result. I've got 71.8 stations. Wait, wait, wait. Sorry. What? So, Laura, you're on 71.8 yeah. stations. Cool dude who's been to every station yeah. in London... You're 70%. This is why it was horrifying. My, I could feel my brain disintegrating in front of me. It was. What were the gaps in your knowledge? I don't. I've realised I know very little about West London, and I don't want mm. to know. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
I, yeah, but you like let's you also sit on the tube and get the answers by go like. No, you know. just when I was on the tube, like if I was on the central line, I'd just have a look and I'd go, oh, Paravale. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if Paravale is on the central line. Actually, I might have to. Check I, I'll my one tube fact. What's hmm. the tube fact? Tube nerds, oh, see, if, see if you know this, and I, I am confident in this one because someone who worked for TFL told it me. What do you think is the lowest visited station on the tube network? Is it Mill Hill East? It's not. Oh. Is it Roding Valley? Oh, God, you nerd. Where's Roding Valley? It's on this, the loop of the, the central line. Uh, the bit no one ever goes on of the central. You know, there's oh. like a loop on the right on the on the eastern side. Yes, I'm like I do. furious <laughs> that you knew that. Oh. Do you want to know why I was asking about the tube in the oh, first yeah, place? So I was, oh yeah, you were talking about. I had a story. This, yeah, is, this, is, this is a good story, right? Okay, so so there's an Abbey Wood at the station, but if you want to visit Abbey Wood, the road, the famous road from the Beatles album, and see the zebra crossing, that's actually closer to St John's Wood Station. Um, obviously, a lot of people make the mistake of going to Abbey Road, the station, thinking they're going to find that Abbey Road. And now we can actually figure out roughly how many people have actually made that mistake, because due to a brilliant, brilliant thing called the Freedom of Information Act, which is a law where you can send any public body uh, an email and say, tell me this. Um, uh, and, what, like any question about anything? Uh, there's, Dear there's, Department of Transport, why have I got this rash? You could you could try. Uh, they tend to. It's usually if they've already got the statistics or the documents you want on hand. Probably easier. Um, okay, got it. But um, uh, so a guy called Ian visits, who's, who's he runs a brilliant blog. Ian visits. Ian visits. Um, is that his surname? Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, nominative determinism. <laughs> he uh, has to go. So I, I don't know if that's his surname, but, um, but that, that's what he brought up. Uh, but, so he FOI'd uh, the exact numbers. He asked TFL how many people took the journey from Abbey Wood to St. John's Wood, because you can just imagine people turn up, go, oh, no, it's not the right place, and then get on, back, on the, back on the tube and go all the way over to the real Abbey Road. Guess how many people in 2023, up to the 8th of October this year, did that journey? Oh, that's interesting. In, um, of 408. So you'd have to go to the wrong place in East London mm. to go, I need to be in North London, or I'm going to go immediately to there. What's your guess? 408? I'm yeah, going to say... Yeah, I just plucked it out of nowhere. I surely no, 400 people aren't going to go. I need it that badly in my life. Um, 172. The answer is actually 853. Oh, Lord. And that's roughly in line with previous years. Last year, there was 876 people across the whole year. In 2021, only 682 people. But it just it sort of goes to show, even when you've got something like a relatively not very often visited thing or a route that you wouldn't think many people would do, there are still hundreds of people doing that because London's so big. But yeah, that's how many people are making the mistake about Abbey Wood. That's quite interesting, actually. That is yeah, very see. interesting. That's crazy. <laughs> yes. yeah. You look so pleased with that. Like, yes. Abbey End of Road series. should do something about that. They should have an attraction. I think, have they thought about What does Ian visit? So there, there was actually a sign at, oh, yeah. the, um, at the DLR station uh, which tell people they're at the wrong place. And it's full of Beatles puns that I don't understand because <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm young and hip. Uh, it's like that, that other thing that went viral recently about the desk in Austria about people had flown to the... They were looking to get to Australia. Do you see that? There was a it was a story going around that there was a desk in, in Vienna airport saying you end up in Austria and you should be in Australia. That puts it into perspective. Apparently that was a, a, a just a viral thing that was not true, uh, but that mm. I, maybe it's true. But yours I can see is is absolutely mm. true. And I mean, there could be some regular commuters. There's lots of noise in the data, but I think given you know that's still going to be mostly people making that mistake. I would have guessed eight hundred odd is yeah statistically significant. Yeah, know. yeah, good, interesting. James, good story to finish on. Laura, great story from you as well. Thank you very much, both of you, for joining us. Laura, for a second time this series. Thank you for having me. And James, 
hey, been here every week. Just keep coming back. Can't uh, get rid of me. Oh, I don't want to. I don't think. It's like Stockholm Syndrome. It's been long <laughs> enough now that I'm, I'm into it. Uh, it's fine. But this has been Series 1 of What's Happening Now. And What's Happening Now will return. Yeah, in January, and uh, I'll be texting you about trains over Christmas just so you don't miss out. You're going to text me on Christmas Day, aren't you? Yeah. I feel like... I feel like... Send some train facts. Yeah, good. Can't wait. I'm going to think of something else about the tubes that will hopefully get you. Roading Valley. That's going to annoy me <laughs> for ages. Laura, thank you very much. Thank you, listeners. Good day to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, happy happy New Year. I don't know. How do we finish this? End Watch ya. <laughs> Watch ya. Is that a goodbye thing as well? No. It's not like a low hat. It doesn't work. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, disappointing. Disappointing low note to end. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.